according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our roller coaster ride through the book of Isaiah has brought us now to chapter 37. We have had one chapter per week for 36 weeks now, and we've maintained the pace at least up until now. Um, kind of a longer chapter this time, though, so we'll see if we can get through all 38 verses. If not, uh, the next chapter is kind of short. Uh, chapter 39 only has eight verses, so I mean, that's my escape hatch. If, uh, if we struggle this week and next through these longer chapters, and then we've got an eight-verse uh, chapter coming up as far as that goes. All right. Isaiah chapter 37. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to humble ourselves under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, the blessing that we have to study, the expectation you have, Father, that we will be diligent to present ourselves approved before you as workmen not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, I ask for your blessings upon our time today as we have assembled together in the name of your Son, as we are seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Father, we uh, humble ourselves under the authority of your truth we thank you for the freedom in our land to do so, Father, freedom that in some respects is, is disappearing, but freedom that still continues. On this day, Father, we are assembled, and on this day, we give you thanks. For it is in Jesus Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, just a short reminder before we plunge into the content. Remember, we're dealing with a section here that is largely parallel to Second Kings, and so we have the parallel here in... Uh, chapter 36, the parallel in chapter 37, and the, ch- and the parallel in chapter 38. And these uh, chapters are parallel to Second Kings, chapter 18, chapter 19, and chapter 20. So if you want to do extra reading during the week, then you can uh, refresh your thinking on this and, and see the narrative as it comes from the historical record of, of Second Kings, all right? Tracking the rise of the kings and how they conducted themselves and how they left their office and... Uh, and so forth. So in these chapters, Isaiah 36 through 39, we're largely parallel to 2 Kings 18 through 20. Also a chapter in 2 Chronicles. You can grab 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and uh, obtain the, uh, the information there as well. And as I'm looking at this, I think that I have last week's slideshow instead of this week's slideshow. That's all right. I can fix that. Yes, that's the chapter 36 slideshow. So, stand by. Not to be thwarted. Um, all it means is I failed to update my shortcut. And chapter 37 is right there. All right, chapters are in parallel. So starting with chapter 37, the Assyrian surrender surrender demands were delivered. We left off a bit with a cliffhanger last week, right? That Jerusalem was surrounded, the Assyrians were out there uh, making threats, that uh, uh, they were taunting the people on the wall to not listen to their king. 
And uh, the agents, King Hezekiah had sent three trusted agents out to negotiate. You remember? We have uh, Rabshakeh is the Assyrian, and he's standing out there taunting Israel. Uh, but uh, Hezekiah had sent Eliakim, uh, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And those three agents were sent out to negotiate with the three agents that the Assyrians had sent. Uh, you might recall that uh, at a certain point, when things were getting a little dicey, they uh, requested that uh, the, condu- the negotiations be conducted in the Aramaic language rather than in Hebrew. And, uh, well, they weren't going to go for that. So uh, in verse 11 of chapter 36, when Eliakim and Shebna and Joah all pleaded with Rabshakeh to speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Aramaic was really the international language, the trade language from the Middle East at that point of time. And, uh, but no, Rabshakeh is, is very eager to continue all the public negotiations in Hebrew. His message and his taunts is more for the people themselves rather than for the king anyway. That if, uh, if the king loses uh, popular support by his population, then he will be uh, more uh, ready to surrender, as, uh, as we might understand. So in any event, from verse 13 on, they continue the negotiations in Hebrew. The good news is, is that when it was said and done at the end, in verse 21, you might recall when we left last week, that even with all the taunts, the people, the soldiers on the wall, the men on the wall stayed silent. And I like that. In verse 21, they were silent and they answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. And so they were expected. They were given warning from Hezekiah. They said, you know what? You're going to hear some terrible things. And don't fall for it. Don't grow weak in faith because of the taunting of these Assyrians. And they're going to stay faithful to the Lord, and they're going to remain obedient to their king, to King Hezekiah. So uh, they, they uh, were silent and answered him not a word. And so as the chapter ended with verse 22, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, And Joah, the son of uh, Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with her clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So they reported back to King Hezekiah the full report of how the negotiations went uh, on the wall. All right, that's the cliffhanger. That's where we left off a week ago. Now we switch into the city itself, and the scene shifts to King Hezekiah and his response. And it's a great response. Isaiah records a marvelous response, one that's much better than a previous response you might read about in Second Kings, and one that's not recounted in, uh, in Isaiah. So verse 1 of chapter 37, when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. He realized that this was such an urgent matter that he better Uh, make it a fervent, effectual prayer ministry face-to-face with the Lord, as close to the the presence of God's holiness as he would be permitted to go. All right, now he can't go into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest can go in there, but he is permitted to go at a certain point. We don't know if it's the holy place or the courtyard or whatever, but he's reaching as, as, as close as he can get to God's holiness in the house of the Lord, or what we would call Solomon's temple. And while he's in there praying... He sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And I kind of wonder if, in fact, he gets into the temple and he grabs all these priests, the elders of the priests that had been on duty in the temple, and said, you need to go get Isaiah the prophet and consult with him. And so 
Possibly even Hezekiah is left alone in the temple at this point um, because he sends the elders of the priests to, uh, to Isaiah. So uh, he sends them to Isaiah the prophet. And uh, they said to him, verse 3, these are the, the envoys to Isaiah. Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke and rejection, for children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver. That's a metaphor, but he's using a metaphor from prophetic revelation about the tribulation of Israel being cast in terms of childbearing. And, Isaiah, and the king Hezekiah is telling Isaiah, look, here we are. We're at this crisis moment of maximum tribulational testing, and we don't have strength to, to birth this baby. We can't do it ourselves. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. And so what do we see here? We see political leadership that makes prayer a priority. We see political leadership that, see, that reaches out to the spiritual leadership of the nation, right? Isaiah does not have a public office. The prophets were not in the executive branch of, of government, we would say, all right? Or legislative branch or judicial branch. They were outside, they were above the Mosaic law code because they spoke directly for the Lord himself. Old Testament prophets were representatives of God himself, and so here is King Hezekiah submitting himself to Isaiah. This is a great pattern. This is a terrific. This is better than David had when David was committing his adultery and all his garbage and stuff. It, Nathan had to go to David and rebuke David for those sins. Hezekiah is going to uh, the prophet Isaiah and saying, "I need your prayers. Our country needs your prayers. Uh, the survival of Jerusalem needs your prayers." And so we're looking at it here. And uh, so, in verse 5, the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And, you know, presumably they repeated everything in verses uh, 3 and 4 there that they were told to repeat. The text doesn't repeat it, but we can presume that they said so. Otherwise, even before they spoke it, Isaiah has a message for them. And that might even be more interesting to think about. As they arrive, he already knows the message because, you know, he's a prophet <laughs> and God tipped him off to uh, what he would anticipate hearing when, uh, when Hezekiah's servants arrive. So Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master. And here is a message of encouragement that comes back from Isaiah to Hezekiah. Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. In other words, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm way ahead of you. I know what you need before you even ask it. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So here's the, the message coming from the Lord, and the servants can now return. Eliakim can go back to, Isaac, go back to Hezekiah and say, hey, the Lord has it covered. Here's what Isaiah had to say. He spoke on behalf of the Lord. And uh, the Assyrians are about ready to leave. They're not going to stick around. And uh, God's got this all in, in control. So here's our first seven verses in, uh, in what we're looking at here. Now, the, um, 
The point is, when the Assyrian surrendered a man was delivered to King Hezekiah, he went immediately to the temple to pray. It's not his last resort, it's his first resort, all right? He's not trying everything he can do, first of all, through human effort. He is taking this immediately to the Lord. And, and it means he's learned from a previous mistake. This was a much better course of action than on a prior occasion when he tried to blackmail the Assyrians. He tried to, not blackmail, he tried to bribe them to go away. He paid a tribute hoping that they would leave him alone. And uh, you can read about that in 2 Kings 18, verses 14 through 16. On a prior occasion when King Hezekiah paid a fear tribute to Sennacherib. Now these are details not found in Isaiah, and so actually synchronizing 2 Kings 18 with Isaiah 37 um, can be done in a couple of different ways. How many many different expeditions were there from uh, Shechem uh, up to uh, Jerusalem? But in verses 14 through 16 here, uh, Hezekiah sent a tribute. And it's kind of pathetic. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish. That's the town, Lachish. And how many, uh, how many exploratory expeditions were sent from Lachish up to Jerusalem? And, and how nervous was Jerusalem that there were Assyrians in the neighborhood? And uh, so Hezekiah sends, and he says, I have done wrong. I have done wrong. Uh, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And on that occasion, Hezekiah paid it. He paid the fear money. He paid the, it's like extortion or protection racket, you know. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, earlier in Hezekiah's ministry, he had funded quite a bit of the restoration of that temple. He had put a lot of his wealth into that temple to restore it and to tear down the high places, all the other great reforms that Hezekiah had done. Now it's being undone because of his fear. Now he's plundering the temple. And I think that's significant. He had a mistake. He had a failure in this regard. And we, we do the same thing. We got all kinds of mistakes. And what are we going to do? We're going to allow our past mistakes to damage us even more in the future? No. You realize the humility uh, Hezekiah has at this point Uh, As we return to Isaiah 37 and we see, all right, King Hezekiah heard it. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, entered into the house of the Lord, the house that he had plundered and defiled and ripped the gold off the doorposts. And and you understand, he has to go into the very temple that he had looted on the previous occasion to help pay the, the, the fear money. And he has to go in there and humble himself before the Lord in prayer. And you can imagine there, there might be a part of us that wouldn't want to do that, right? Would you want to go into a temple that you had just stripped bare of the gold, right? Is that the place you want to go, the scene of your failure, to ask for the Lord's help? Okay? Now, in human terms, we say that's a problem. In human terms, if I'm standing in the scene of my failure, well, then that might remind God that I failed. And, and well, wait a minute, okay? He hasn't forgotten. He's not ignorant of what's going on. He knows you failed. All right, And the response to prayer is not because you've earned it or deserved it anyway. Quit lying to yourself thinking, hey, I've been pretty good lately. God owes me a few, uh, a few uh, brownie points. I'll, I'll, I'll cash in some of those chips. Not like that. 
So this is a much better course of action than on that prior occasion. He sends his highest officers to the prophet Isaiah. Now we don't know where Isaiah was, somewhere within, obviously, if the city's under siege, they didn't travel out of town to go fetch Isaiah. He's probably in the city of Jerusalem somewhere. And uh, he sends his highest officers, uh, at least in terms of Hilkiah and Shebna. I don't know what happened to Joah, why he disappeared out of this, but that's all right. And uh, requested that Isaiah join in his prayer burden before the Lord. He doesn't say, summon him to appear before me. He doesn't say, you know, you show up here and do something about this. But he urges prayer. He says, I'm here in the temple. I'm praying. Please pray on behalf of this nation. He says at the end of verse 4, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. And I like that. All right, asking for prayer. And he sends his highest officers to do that. And so Isaiah sends an encouraging message back. Yes, I will pray for you. And by the way, the prayers have already been heard. The prayers have already been answered. It gives him the encouraging message to Hezekiah. It's kind of a neat role. I think the, the prophet-king pattern from the Old Testament is, is not entirely dissimilar to the uh, spiritual gifts of the church age and the role that a, an encourager might have, for example, if there's a gifted encourager in a local church. And from time to time, uh, the pastor of the church may, uh, may benefit greatly if there is an encouragement gift in operation and the role of... Uh, of, uh, of, a, of an agent such as that. In the Old Testament, it's the prophets encouraging the kings. All right. So the Lord has already planned for Sennacherib's departure. He's already got it covered. The plan is already done. The methodology appears similar to other incidents when God utilized demonic agents to achieve his purpose. You know, what God does to control human history is fascinating because he never once does he coerce volition. Never once does he force any human being to choose to do anything. Or never once does he cause a fallen angel to choose to do anything. Or a demon to choose to do anything. But he lays out the circumstances and conditions and throws open a, uh, a, uh, a job opening on monster.com and says, are there any demons that would love to come and afflict this uh, particular king? And then usually the line of demons is out the door. Oh, well, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Okay? And if it's a Jewish king especially, the demons are very eager for that. It's an interesting methodology. And if you ever study divine guidance and study how God coordinates the circumstances and how God utilizes volitional beings, doesn't coerce their volition, but through their volition achieves his ultimate glory. I think it's powerful. Now as I look at these verses here in 5 through 7, I think it's great. Thus says the Lord, stop being afraid. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. I heard them a long time ago. I heard them before the foundation of the world. I knew this was happening with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, here's what I'm going to do. And I'm not just winging it here in response to what uh, was said. I've been planning this all along. I will put a spirit in him. He will hear a rumor. And I know what he will do when he hears that rumor. See, God knows every choice that's made under every set of circumstances. And so he puts the circumstances in place whereby the choices will be made that are in keeping with his overall purpose. I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. See, we're so puny. Our planning is so short-sighted. We, we, we see, here's a test, and we don't see the solution to the test. And we just, we pull our hair out and we say, what next? What now? How do we solve this? 
and we fail to realize that we don't have to solve this. God has already, with every test he assigns, what's he also provided? He's also provided the way of escape. He's also provided the victorious conclusion to every test. All right? The victorious conclusion to every test. And so when he created the set of circumstances that caused the Assyrian army to have Jerusalem surrounded, he didn't just bring that about. He also had planned the conclusion to that siege, the departure of the Assyrians, the death of 185,000 soldiers overnight, if in fact that's an accurate number. We'll talk about that, all right? If uh, we've got to understand the term thousand and what thousand might represent in that, and I'll get to that before the end of today. In any event, God assigned the test and he assigned the solution to the test. And that's true for every test you'll ever face on this earth. All your work tests, your financial tests, your marriage tests, your family tests, your children tests, every test you will ever face between the cross and the crown. God has not only designed the test, he's designed the ekbasis, the victorious conclusion to that test. So quit trying to solve it yourself. Humble yourself and find his solution. Ask him to make clear the solution he has already determined. Now, are you familiar with 1 Kings 22? I'm going to hold my finger here. I'm going to use a church bulletin. Thank you for these church bulletins. Great bookmarks. I'm going to go back to 1 Kings chapter 22. And this might, if you've never seen this, might strike you as kind of odd. But again, we find a Gentile army and we find an invasion and we find a Jewish king that's wondering, where's the solution here? And we find kings that kind of pick and choose who they want to listen to, right? Like people today pick and choose what kind of pastors they want. We don't want those mean pastors that preach about sin, all right? We want those nice pastors that tell me I'm a good person. I want to walk out of here with my moralistic, therapeutic deism intact, and, and uh, I don't want to be made to feel like I'm a sinner or anything. And, and so in this chapter, we have uh, King Jehoshaphat in the, the, from the south, from, from uh, Judah, and then the king from the north, the king of Israel, and they're getting together for an endeavor. And, and in terms of seeking divine guidance, I find it interesting um, <laughs> the king of the north is, is just consulting all these false prophets, all these false priests, all this terrible religious system. And I love how uh, Jehoshaphat in First in Kings 22.7 says, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? <laughs> Don't you have any prophets of Yahweh around? We've got a bunch of them down in the south. And the king of the north uh, says, well, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, well, There's yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him. (laughs) He does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. I hate this guy. Every time he opens his mouth, he's saying bad things about me. He's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. I look forward to meeting this man someday. Get to meet him in heaven. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Bring him here. So they bring him here. And then he has a message. And it's a terrible message. I mean, it's true. It's true, but the king of Israel isn't liking it, all right? Now, the, um, the heavenly scene behind this is interesting. So you get down 
in verse 19, Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And there's a division there, that right and left division between saved and lost, righteous and wicked. All right. Like sheep and goat separation or in heaven. Now we've got fallen angels and elect angels, evil spirits. Remember, they're not yet expelled from heaven. They still have access to the courts where they file their grievances and their accusations and their complaints. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. So he throws out the offer here. Who wants to do this? And a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said, How? And so he's getting the, the mechanism in place, the methods, the, the means, and he's giving permission in the permissive will of God for these, this evil spirit to do this. And you see how he does it. I will go out now and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Now God himself is not a liar and God would not deceive anyone, but in permissive will, is he going to allow for these demons to do it? Absolutely he's going to allow these demons to do it. So I will be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And that's similar to what we're seeing today in Isaiah, right? The king's going to hear a rumor. Well, where's he going to hear that? And he's going to depart. He's going to head back to Assyria. And how does the Lord know? See, because he knows all of these what-ifs. He knows every volitional response to every circumstantial condition. And so uh, at the recommendation of this spirit, the Lord in verse 22 says, uh, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Yahweh knows if he hears that enticement, this is what the response is going to be. And so uh, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. And this is what happens. And in the rest of this chapter is, is comedy. I would love to spend the whole hour on this chapter. Um, they decide they're going into battle now. You get down to verse 29, right? And here's the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. They're getting ready now to attack Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel says to Jehoshaphat, hey, I got an idea. I'm going to disguise myself and go into battle just as you know, a private foot soldier and, and whatever. But, but you, Jehoshaphat, you're, you're king of Judah. Go ahead and uh, put on your robes and act like a king. And, <laughs> and uh, okay. As if that's going to save his life. All right? So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. And uh, anyway, in verse 34, a certain man just at random, coincidentally, happened to draw his bow at random, coincidentally, just happened to shoot an arrow at random, coincidentally. And look who he hits, the king of Israel, and joined to the armor. That, that little private disguise didn't work, did it? Okay. <laughs> Oh, this is great. So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. So much for King Ahab. Anyway, this is the encouraging message now, and Isaiah is able to encourage Hezekiah to say, God's way ahead of you. Thanks for the prayers. God's way ahead of you. He's got a plan. He is going to send a rumor, all right? And rumors are more powerful than soldiers sometimes, because that king is going to hear the rumor, and he's going to believe it. Because the Assyrians are natural, naturally suspicious people anyway. <laughs> he got his job by assassinating the guy before him. So, you know, what's going to happen next? I think that's true. i got to check that again. He's going to get assassinated. All right. 
It's going to be a conspiracy among his sons. Two of them will be the agents of the execution and they'll have to flee. And the, the third one will actually be the one to say, oh, well, gee, I didn't know. And he'll take the throne. Okay. But all three were in on it. All right. So back to Isaiah then. God's in charge. God is in charge. And we can be thankful for that. So this is what happens. Rapshaka returned to the main Assyrian army and found Sennacherib listening to rumors. <laughs> so Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna. Well, what's he doing there? He had been left uh, at Lachish before, but now he's fighting at uh, Libna. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Well, why didn't he stay at Lachish? Why did he reposition the armies? Why is he now going up against Libna? And what happened in the meantime while Rabshakeh was away? When he heard them say concerning Turhakah, king of Cush, he has come out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. So now there's these rumors. And they're not true, but Sennacherib believes them. So Rabshakeh returns and he finds Sennacherib listening to rumors, just like Isaiah had said was going to happen. And so then Rabshakeh, his only Jerusalem strategy at this point, he can't even go back and utter the threats himself. He has to just write a letter and send a messenger up there with it. Rabshakeh's only Jerusalem strategy at this point is diminished to a threatening letter. All right, and that's what happens here in verses 9 through 13. So uh, when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah. And there are more threats similar to what he had said verbally in the last chapter. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And uh, we're not afraid of your God. We weren't afraid of all these other gods. The gods of those nations didn't stop them, right? Gozen and Haran and Rezif and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar. Where's the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Sepharvaim and, and of Hena and Iva, okay? You ever heard of those places? Me either, <laughs> okay? When God removes them from history, they're removed. And uh, those gods didn't help, didn't help them. Interesting. Rabshakeh's only Jerusalem strategy at this point is diminished to a threatening letter. I wasn't sure how bright that would show up there, but anyway, you can do some map work on this and have some fun with it. Um, here's Lachish down here at the bottom, and then he repositioned up here to Libna. The fear is from down below here, from Cush. In fact, Cush is going to have dominance over Egypt very shortly. Anyway, get back from that. So he can't even go back and verbally issue those threats again the second time. All he can do is just send a letter. All right? And Isaiah, or uh, King Hezekiah knows exactly what to do with that letter. Okay? He's going to take custody of that letter, and he's going to go back into the temple, and he's going to lay it out there on the altar and say, Lord, this is yours to deal with. <laughs> okay? What a pattern for us to follow. What a great pattern. Hezekiah took the letter of Rabshakeh and laid it before the Lord in a beautiful expression of faith rest. You ever do that? Take a document, take a, you know, whatever. You got a threatening letter from somebody. You know, it may not be Rabshakeh. Maybe it's the IRS or whoever. You get a threatening letter from somebody. Just lay it out there and say, Lord, you know what, you know what that's all about. You know what's being said. You know what's not being said. You know, the, you got the whole plan taken care of. And you can start to apply faith rest. And I love this. This is a, a tremendous testimony on the part of Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts. And when you read through his prayer, you understand what a capacity for doctrine King Hezekiah had. How blessed Israel was to have a believer for a king, a believer with divine viewpoint, a believer with an understanding of the Word of God. You know, I can't claim that for our present president. And even uh, in the past, when we've had born-again regenerate presidents, I have to wonder, how much doctrine do they have? Are they oriented to truth? Have they bought into the, the moralistic, therapeutic deism? Are they entirely dispensationally confused? Do they understand what it means to bless Israel and not curse Israel? Sometimes I wonder. All right. You know, the, the politician that was mocked more than any other in my lifetime was Dan Quayle. And that was the politician that was under Baraka teaching, under verse by verse teaching from R.B. Theme Jr. in Baraka, Texas. I'm not shocked that he was the one that hated until Sarah Palin came along more than anybody else and all the rest. Anyway, uh, 14 through 20, let's look at his doctrine. O Lord of hosts, Yahweh Tsevayoth, he's the Lord of the armies. Good God to pray to him if you've got armies on your doorstep. O Yahweh of Tsevayoth, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim. That's significant. We are your covenant nation. You dwell amongst us. You are behind that veil I can't go behind. I'm as close to you as I can get. But you are our God, enthroned above the cherubim. You rest at the mercy seat. You are God. You, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. All those other phonies are just demons and fallen angels posing as gods. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. If, if Hezekiah was incensed in his soul, imagine what God is responding to this blasphemy. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands. See, Hezekiah is not stupid. They were wood and stone. Of course, they didn't save anybody. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, Yahweh, our Elohim, our God, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. This is your opportunity, Yahweh, to prove to all the world that they were phonies and you're real. And we are your people. And there's a great prayer. And it shows, the, it shows the divine viewpoint that Hezekiah has. He is calling upon Yahweh to defend his own name. Notice, if, was there anything in here that says, and by the way, we deserve for you to rescue us? <laughs> we've been faithful. We've been good. We're, we're a bunch of nice guys here, Lord. He didn't say anything about what Jerusalem had earned or deserved. Or how, oh, we've been good. We've been obedient. He just says, Lord, defend your name so Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word back to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. Oh, isn't this great? Okay. Hezekiah's prayer is a model prayer. It is a model prayer. I think we can glean patterns and principles out of it like we do with Luke chapter 6, like we do with several other prayers that we have, and like we can do with Daniel in his prayer in Daniel chapter 9. In particular, if we're praying for a godless nation that's on the verge of destruction. 
just for instance, if you happen to think of any. Okay. Hezekiah's prayer is a model prayer with the appropriate adoration and worship. Calling to Yahweh Tzivayoth and worshiping Him for who He is. Calling upon the Lord to magnify His name. When you read Daniel chapter 9, I won't, I won't take us there this morning, but Daniel 9, 4-19, through 19, Daniel is confessing the sins of his entire nation. That takes a while. <laughs> Especially with a bunch of sinners like Israel. All right, interceding on their behalf, pleading on their behalf. It's a great mindset that Daniel has. We better have that mindset. Are we prayerful on behalf of our nation? Are we salt and light? Are we preserving our nation? You say, well, you know, my prayer's not going to change anything. Come on. You say, well, God's got a plan, right? And God's going to execute his plan, so it doesn't matter what I pray. It doesn't matter if I pray or not pray. God's going to do what God's going to do. Wait a minute. Expand your thinking here for a minute. Okay, expand your thinking for a minute. Yes, God has appointed the rise of of nations and the fall of nations. God installs kings and removes kings. God has the times and the epics in his sovereign control, just as God has the days of your life in his sovereign control. We can't add to the days of our life by being anxious, but God can add to them. He's promised to add to them. If we honor our father and mother, he will add to our days. There are other circumstances by which he might shorten our days. So I think it's, it's, it's immature to think that, well, we have X number of days and that's that. No, I believe we have X, Y, and Z number of days that God has pre-planned and pre-scheduled X, Y, and Z. And the X is what it is. But if we humble ourselves and honor our father and mother, and he will then extend to the Y, right? Because he promised to do so. And so we have X number of days on a basic level, and by extension now to Y, in permissive will, as he designs. And he's got that program too. Or Z, tragically. We can shorten our days if we dishonor our father and mother, if we die the sin unto death, if we rebel on the plan of God and go apostate. And we die the sin and the death. Well, then we reach the Z date. That's what I mean by X, Y, and Z. He's got three different variables. And they're all a part of his plan. And by the way, from the foundation of the world, he knows which one we're going to go to. But that doesn't change the fact that he has already charted those all out. Same thing with nations, with the rise and fall of nations. There's an X date, a Y date, and a Z date. And if you think your prayer doesn't do anything, then you better take a second look at the word because in this next verse. Because. Hmm. Isaiah 37, 21. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Ooh. Prayer did something. Prayer adjusted a timetable, maybe. Or prayer um, triggered something. Okay? Now, I, I know for an absolute fact that Jerusalem was slated for destruction in 586 B.C., that it wasn't going to be Assyria, it was going to be the Babylonians. It wasn't going to be Sennacherib, it was going to be Nebuchadnezzar. I know for a fact that God had that planned before the foundation of the world, but what about in between? What about in the meantime? Might Hezekiah had undergone additional humility and discipline and, and additional hardships? Did he have to be delivered this very night? 
Could it have been a week later, a month later? Might it have been with additional loss of life in cities and whatever else? Might have been. But because of this prayer on this day, rescue comes this night. And it is spoken of as causative. Because you have prayed. Because you have prayed. I think a lot of our testing is a lot longer than it needed to have been. Because we were slow to give it to the Lord in prayer. We tried to handle it ourselves with human effort. We tried to solve it ourselves with how smart we are, or the money we could throw at it, or find some kind of an answer. And then finally, when we gave up on ourselves, we just said, well, let's pray about it. And then, as a last resort, we finally got around to praying, and then God said, you know, I've been withholding that answer all this time. Sometimes I think also our testing is longer than it needs to be because our testing isn't about us anyway. Our testing is about what other people are learning as they watch us. And so if they learn the lessons they need to learn sooner rather than later, then my testing can end when the purpose is complete. So rather than grumble about how long my test seems to be lasting, I better go to the Father and say, Father, who is it that's supposed to learn from watching me do what, what, what they're watching me do? Okay? Starting with myself, what am I supposed to learn in this? But also, what are other people supposed to learn in this? Help me teach them what they need to learn. So we can wrap this up, move on to the next one. Remember, the whole point of ending the test is not to be problem-free. It's to move on to the next one, which is going to be tougher than this one. All right. Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. And he composes a song and speaks of the mocking. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has taken her head behind, shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. And it is so poetic and it is so blunt and it's so, um, we've talked about this before, but it's the, 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 the poetry on this is the king is going to turn around in shame and go back home. He's going to take his ball and go home, right? He's going to go back to Assyria. And Jerusalem remains a virgin daughter, okay? Jerusalem remains unconquered, okay? The walls are not pierced. She remains virgin and pure and protected in the poetry of this. All right. So whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel? You're not taunting Hezekiah in Jerusalem. You're taunting the Creator of the universe. And so uh, here's what's going to happen to you. And what's interesting, all of this is what I'm doing, what I'm doing, what I'm doing. Yahweh says, you're so boastful. You think you're doing this. You think you're doing that. Let me tell you what I'm doing. And I've been doing it all this time. I like in verse 26, have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I've brought it to pass. Okay? I'm way ahead of you. From the foundation of the world, Yahweh says, my plan is one that's being achieved. So, um, verse 28, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance has come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This is standard Assyrian uh, procedure. Hooks through the nose, hooks through the jaw. 
That was a standard Assyrian practice. And God says, hey, I've got some hooks. And you guys are going back. Going back to Assyria. See, the Lord used Assyria to discipline the northern kingdom. He used Assyria to bring the northern kingdom of Israel to a close. But that's it. He is not going to use Assyria to discipline Judah. And in fact, the consequences for Assyria destroying the northern kingdom is that Assyria also must now be destroyed because they have cursed the Jewish people. And so there it is. Isaiah sends a second encouraging message to Hezekiah. (laughs) Well, wasn't the first one good enough? Shouldn't he have been encouraged with it? Just that first message all by himself? Here's a second message now. The Lord is taking particular action in a specific response to King Hezekiah's prayer. 21 through 29. The Lord is taking particular action in specific response to King Hezekiah's prayer. See, what if the, what if the people are praying, but the king isn't? What if the people accept the Messiah, but the religious leaders reject him? What if the, the wife is positive in the doctrine and in the, the will of God, and the husband's a knucklehead? When does the Father take action? When does the spiritual leadership get it in gear? So Hezekiah utters the prayer and the Lord takes action. I like that. All right, 21 through 29. And we've read the verses already. Isaiah provides a three-year sign for King Hezekiah and he connects that sign with an overnight delivery. Isaiah provides a three-year sign for King Hezekiah and then connects that sign with a promise of overnight delivery. And you'll notice he's not doing this because Hezekiah deserves it. He's not doing it because Jerusalem deserves it or that the Jewish people at large deserve it. He's doing it for his name's sake and for David's sake, really. So, verse 30, this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. You know, the state of your crops is pretty terrible because the Assyrians have been trampling in these recent weeks and months and plundering. In the second year, what springs from the same. In the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. This is the normal agricultural process and what it takes to take uh, damaged land and try to make it profitable again. It takes three seasons. Or so I'm told. From what I've read, I'm not a farmer. All right, I'm the anti-farmer. But here's the three-year promise. Now, anyone can make a three-year promise. How do do I know it's true? Well, because by tomorrow morning, those soldiers are going to be gone. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You're not going to get it done. God's going to get it done. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. By the way, I think the zeal of the Lord of hosts was the greatest testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ that the disciples could have seen in the Gospels, in the first advent. They saw his zeal. Nowadays he'd be called a fanatic. (laughs) All right. Verse 33, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come up before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it 
By the way that he came, by the same he will return. He will not come to this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So an overnight delivery is going to be promised and delivered. And that's the sign, that's the encouragement that the next three years, don't worry about it, he's not coming back. You can plant, you can prep this field, you can get your your, uh, agriculture back on target again. And then that night is when the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185 Elephim in the camp of the Assyrians. 185,000 or 185 chiefs, 185 military leaders, commanding officers in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. He said, okay, I'm done. That's a good time to go home now. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. So my three sons and their, uh, their conspiracy against Sennacherib. And uh, two of them have to live in exile in Ararat, while the third one becomes king in his place. Notice, though, in verse 35, it's not for your sake. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. For my servant David's sake. Okay? Why does Hezekiah need an additional extension to his life? You know, is the the seed of the woman in jeopardy here? Is the seed of David in jeopardy here? Where's the heir? All right. The angel of the Lord personally ended the Assyrian threat against Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord personally ended the Assyrian threat against Jerusalem. Remember, no matter how hopeless it looks in human terms, God remains in charge. His sovereignty is in charge. And you say, well, I just don't see any way out. Oh, well, not up to you anyway. (laughs) Whether you can see it or not, God's still in charge. And there may not be a military solution. There may not be an economic solution. There may not be a political solution. But if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, okay, can, uh, can the Lord move his hand? Will he move his hand in response to our prayers? And if not, will he uh, send his angel to get us out of Sodom? <laughs> okay, remember, don't look back. All right. The angel of the Lord, this is Jesus Christ himself. If you've never done a study on the angel of the Lord, I would encourage you. The angel of the Lord is the most common pre-incarnate Christophany. Of all the pre-incarnate Christophanies, in other words, before the virgin conceives and bear a son, before the babe in swaddling clothes is lying in a manger, God the Son appeared on this earth in a variety of different epiphanies, Christophanies, we call them. The burning bush, the pillar of fire, um, But the most common one is the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh. The most common pre-incarnate Christophany when God the Son appears on earth. It's not His Spirit moving, it's His Son who appears as the angel of the Lord. He is the agent of Yahweh. And it's very common to see when He's speaking, He speaks in the first person as Yahweh. He is the angel of Yahweh, but then He says, I will make your name great, right? He speaks as Yahweh. 
in the first person. And in maybe the easiest example of this is in speaking to Hagar about uh, Ishmael. But there's so many, there's many, many others as well. But it's the angel of the Lord who appears and he speaks as the Lord with the sovereignty and the glory and the majesty of God himself. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring of the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Aren't those the kind of questions that Yahweh asks when he walks in the garden in the cool of the day, right? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Are angels in charge of this? This is God himself that speaks to this. I will. Remember, if an angel speaks, I will, like Satan, that's usually a prideful thing. God speaks, I will. And the I am accomplishes every I will, he declares. Your descendants will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction. It's the angel of Yahweh, but he speaks as Yahweh. All right, so this is the uh, appearance of God the Son. Same thing here. It is God the Son in a pre-incarnate Christophany. It was God the Son on the night of Passover in Egypt that flew over Israel, or flew over Egypt and killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, but preserved the firstborn sons of the Jews when he saw the blood on the uh, doorposts. It was God the Son who did that. The angel of Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh. All right. Now, the, the uh, traditional reading of 185,000 dead Assyrians, this is a matter for text critical study. The issue is significant in this episode and also on a larger scale for the population of Israel, the Exodus, and throughout their wilderness wanderings. And the, the short version is this the term Eleph. The term Eleph can mean a thousand, it can mean other things besides a thousand, it can mean the commanders of a thousand. In other words, your division uh, commanders, your lieutenant colonels, your colonels. Eleph can and often does mean a thousand. Eleph can also mean chief or captain. Now these are going to be not your typical foot soldiers, but your fully armed and armored professional soldiers that form the officer corps in the ancient Near East. All right. Even in Roman times, even with the legions, your basic legionary didn't have anywhere near the training that your centurions had. Fully armed and armored professional soldiers formed in the officer corps in the ancient Near East. These LF or Elephim would serve as captains of 50, captains of 100, and captains of 1,000 or commanders of 1,000. Different English translations, sometimes captains, sometimes commanders. But captains of 50, captains of 100, captains of 1,000. And if that's what we're dealing with here as well, by the way, if you want to read more on this, I recommend Wenham, J.W. Wenham. And Titus spoke of this when he was here at the archaeology conference years ago. Titus Kennedy taught this understanding of Eleph and the Elephim. Technical details for this understanding are presented by J.W. Wenham, a journal article in the Tyndale Bulletin back in 1967. It's been tweaked slightly since then, but I think it's, it still stands today as the as the best understanding of these terms. Not only for this chapter, all right? 
So the angel flies over and decimates the entire officer corps of the Assyrian army. The Assyrian army was not 185,000. Okay? When, when, when Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, he showed up with 70,000. Okay? That gives you kind of a perspective of scale. And the Romans were able to mobilize armies much larger than any the Greeks or the Assyrians or the Persians or anybody prior to them. Even the Persians, when they sent the, the forces into Marathon of Thermopylae and so forth, didn't reach these kind of numbers. All right. Uh, so I'll recommend J.W. Wenham on this if you want more on that. It has the, uh, the, the more significant applications in the book of Numbers. How many Jewish people walked through the Red Sea? Okay. Did they really have 600,000 soldiers at the Exodus? And then they got into Canaan and they conquered seven nations greater and larger than themselves. That means that the smallest of those seven nations they defeated had to have had more than 600,000 soldiers. Okay? And with women and children and old people and whatnot, that means that on the traditional numbering system, there were two to three million Jews that walked out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Or we need a better understanding of what Eliph is about. And we're not counting thousands, we're counting captains. We're counting the divisions of these tribes. And you have 72,000 Jewish emigrants that depart Egypt through the Red Sea in a much more archaeological consistent number. In any event, more on that if you have any questions, we can handle questions on Wednesday night. The postscript. So clearly though, if you lose 185 of your officers and all you have left are the untrained minions, all right, Not only are you not going to sack Jerusalem, but you are very quickly going to get back home quickly before the Egyptians arrive, before a trained military gets here. All right? Because you've got soldiers without direction. Let's get home now. And because, I mean, if we can lose all our officers tonight, who can we lose tomorrow night? (laughs) This place is haunted. Let's get out of here. And that's what happens. All right, the postscript on Sennacherib's remaining lifetime encompasses some 20 years. Didn't realize it was 20 years, did you? In verses uh, 37 and 38, 20-year retirement in Nineveh where he wrote his annals. He kind of wrote his memoirs. He carved his, uh, his uh, little uh, pyramids like we saw last week, the, the prism I showed you last week. Uh, decided to spend 20 years writing up his memoirs about every victory he ever had. Didn't really write anything about this night, <laughs> okay? No, we're not going to talk about that. All right. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the entire episode, Father. An army that we can't deal with, you can deal with it. Thank you, Father, that you assign our testing to us and you've already provided the solution. Thank you for examples of what happens when the king is saved and positive to doctrine. Thank you for what happens when a king makes the word of God his priority when he's humble before the Bible teachers of his generation. Father, uh, we ask that such a set of circumstances might take place here, that we would have a president that fears you and is a student of your truth, that respects the exegetes of of uh, of our churches, Father. Not the big pop trendy pastors, but the men that are handling the Greek and the Hebrew, the men that are feeding their flock. Father, I pray that we would have a president that's humble before the whole counsel of your word, line upon line and precept upon precept. I pray this, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.